Welcome to the Ministry Podcast. It is such a privilege that you would tune in. All of my content is designed to bring hope to the dreamers and doers that Jesus offers us a better way to life and Jesus offers us a better way to lead. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Amen, amen. You guys may be seated. The title of today's message is Emotions Matter. Emotions matter. If you're new here, my name is uh, Trey Van Camp. It's a pleasure to have you. We're starting a new collection of talks today. If you remember back in November, really in September, uh, October, we started this journey through Ephesians 4 through 6. Well, Christmas came up, and then January, we like to dedicate it to, to vision and looking forward. Uh, so today, we're actually now jumping into back into the book of Ephesians. And where we left off in November was Ephesians 5, verse 21. And so we're going to pick right back up and really look Look at 22 through uh, 33 for the next few weeks. Um, but today I really found it helpful for us to begin with the end and looking at verse 29 and following. I might be on in the monitor that or it's just me yet again. I apologize. So let, let's look at this in verse 29 through 33. We're going to be looking, really this collection of talks is called Practicing the Way in Relationship, and particularly these set of scriptures are all about marriage. Now, let me just say this right away. Some of you don't have any plans to ever getting married, and I'm here to declare to you that is okay, that God has called some people to singleness for a lifetime or singleness for a season. You were married at one time. And so as a pastor, I'm always hesitant to really speak into marriage because I don't want to ostracize anybody. But at the same time, I'd love for us to really think of this perspective as we're here for the church as a whole. And so it's really helpful for all of us to know these things. Uh, to encourage our brothers and sisters who are entering into marriage, who are struggling in their marriage, or doing well in marriage, I think it's helpful for us as we study scriptures to not just think of ourselves, amen, and to really see how this helps. But also the way I'm going to be preaching it is also I really hope that you find great application for your life in general, uh, not just in your marriage, but in how you deal in relationships as a whole. I will say our marriage workshop will be very much about marriage, and it will get into some more details uh, that I probably won't go to on Sunday mornings. So I would encourage encourage you, if you're somebody who has been married for a long time and feel like you got it figured out, I would love for you to join our workshop because we need your wisdom. We need you to be there to guide some of us who aren't doing as well in marriage. Also, if you are not married, but you see that within the next five years of your life, I'd really encourage you to sign up for the marriage workshop. I'll talk about that at the end of the service on how you can sign up. But today, again, we're going to be looking at marriage, but particularly with emotions. Verse 29, it says, for no one ever hates his own flesh, but look, provides and cares for it just as Christ does for the church since we are members of his body. Right away, we have to understand, how does marriage provide and care? How do we care and provide in marriage? Well, if you look through all the biblical texts, um, it's very clear that marriage, number one, provides a social purpose. It's how we populate this planet. Another way, marriage cares for physical desires. We, if you know 1 Corinthians 7, if you have the passionate lust within you, uh, take care of it and enjoy intimacy within the context of a marriage. Marriage also provides a spiritual calling. I will say it is the most sanctifying experience. You think you're a great person until you have to live with your spouse and you realize how terrible, not how terrible they are, but how terrible you are and all your little idiosyncrasies. But the other thing, marriage actually cares for your emotional needs. That's why today the passages emotions matter. I think it's really easy to read this passage, for example, and not really think about emotions. But I think if you've been married for any length of time, any relationship, any length of time, I think you would all agree that emotions matter. 
Verse 31, um, read this. It says, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and will be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This actually implies a union that kind of seems impossible, saying you two people are now one. To be joined in the commentaries, it says to literally be, not literally, but it means to be intellectually, spiritually, physically, and emotionally united. A book I read this week says that you cannot have connection without emotion. I submit to you today that emotions matter. Marriage is about that union. What I love about marriage, you're so united that even the lift of an eyebrow, you just heard a million words from your spouse. Amen? Picture may say a thousand words, but an eyebrow says a million. Okay? And marriage is full of these nonverbal cues. It's incredible. Just today, uh, Caleb said, all right, everybody, let's get together. And then me and Jordan and Unison, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was fantastic. It was just this union. Praise God. Uh, it was a real thing. Okay, so I submit to you today, though, and I want us to look at this passage, how emotions matter. Let's pray. Father God, I ask for your wisdom today. I ask God that you would... Um, Speak to us. God, I know that there's some of us in this crowd that uh, wants to ignore emotions altogether. God, I pray that you give us a word. I know there's a lot of us here who are driven by emotions too much. God, I just pray through this coming collection of talks and through this marriage workshop, I pray that you would restore some of our marriage relationships. But God, I pray that you would not only just restore, but God, renew and bring afresh. And may our marriages and our church context just absolutely thrive. In Jesus' name I pray. Everybody says... Amen. Amen. This is point number one. Emotions matter, but they are a terrible master. Emotions matter, but they are a terrible master. After World War II, people were desperate for a better solution. So there's a city-state, you may not have heard of it, called Libria, and they got creative. They decided the problem for this whole world war and for war in general is emotions were the ones to blame. So they took a few steps forward, and so they decided to move art, music, and literature from their society, thinking those are the things that stir the affections the most. But then a breakthrough really happened, and they really thought they could really attain peace when they concocted the perfect medicinal depressant. They even got so far as to say, okay, this is the answer to all of our world's problems. They created an agency to enforce this. Every single person in this society had to take this antidepressant. The story goes that during a routine raid, one of the key agents accidentally spilt his own vial. And so for that day, he didn't have the depressant and he started to experience an, a myriad of emotions for the first time. So he began, actually, to every once in a while, skip his vial, skip his dosage. And eventually led, because of his influence, because he fell so in love with emotion, he led this national resistance to overthrow the government. And I think it's one of Christian Bell's most underrated movies called Equilibrium. Anybody heard of that one before? <laughs> that is not a true story. Amen. Praise God. We're in the movies. I've got to throw those in there every once in a while. Throughout history, both in reality, though, and in fiction, there has been a commotion about emotion. There is all this, oh, how does emotions play in relationships? This is the problem, or it's the solution. But I'm here today, I think in the biblical text, it's very clear. Emotions matter, but they are a terrible master. I don't think it takes much awareness to know that we are not in an equilibrium society. I think we have gone the exact opposite. 
It's not that we've deadened emotions. I think a lot of us are driven by emotions in today's culture. Do you guys remember, there was, a, there was this man a few months ago where we talked about Edwin Friedman's cycle of anxiety. See, what we have is we are run by our emotions. We decide every day. If you actually watch the news, fear and anger are what drive the news. And we are the ones who continue to come to the news because fear and anger continue to make us react in all sorts of ways. And we want to keep checking the news to see how it ends. But of course, you and I both know it never ends. I think when you're in emotional society, everything is about reaction. How did this person react to this comment? How did he react to that? Reaction, reaction, reaction. And we just got our popcorn and we're watching. We are in a non-equilibrium state, and I think equilibrium and what we're in is not the answer. It's as if you and I today live for our stomachs to be churned. It's as if you and I live for our heads to explode in anger because we keep going back to the source that is doing that to us. And so I think it's tempting to believe that society needs to remove emotion. And maybe we're not looking at society today, although I think it has a lot of implications. But what about your marriage? What about in the home? Some of our marriages are just driven by emotion. And that means sometimes the highs are really high, but the lows are really, really low. And some of us just try to remove emotion altogether. We no longer actually know our partner. We just kind of live life with them. So I think what we have to ask ourselves, is there an actual solution? Well, I believe the biblical text again says emotions matter, but they are a terrible master. So when Paul was writing this, because remember, Paul is the one who wrote this book to Ephesus, the church in Ephesus. And during this time, there were two competing philosophies uh, that kind of ruled the day, especially when it comes to understanding emotion. The first one, you may know this, it was founded in 300 BC, is called Stoicism. Okay, the best way to describe Stoicism, there's many other, many ways, but one way that I thought of it that's helpful to remember is they think that passion is pathetic. Okay, you cannot determine your life. There is no virtue, really, in determining your life's goal based off of emotion. They kind of really, really taught that don't trust your emotions. Sometimes it leads you down the wrong path. So passion in itself is pathetic. So really, for Stoicism, everything was about being rational. And so I actually think there is some helpful, I think Stoicism is starting to get more and more attractive because we are so driven by emotion. It's really nice to see somebody who is just kind of stoic uh, in the midst of a lot of chaos. And we'll talk about how Jesus offers a better solution to that. So Stoicism, which was founded around 300 BC, and I would argue that we still have that as an ideology today. Then you have the second one is Epicureanism. This was also found at 306 BC. So Stoicism is passion is pathetic. And it's likely that some people in this context in the church in Ephesus believe that. But also Epicureanism believes passion is your purpose. Everything, it's all about passion. Do whatever brings you the most passion. Do whatever brings you the most emotion. And so especially in Ephesus, this was definitely something they did. They would move from relationship to relationship because once the passion died, then there's no reason. There's absolutely no reason you should still be with that person. Go on to the next spouse or the next partner. So again, Stoicism was about being rational, but I would say Epicureanism is about being riveting. What is riveting? What is fun? What's engaging? So I think a lot of Epicureans, I hate to mention the Enneagram, but like sevens would like totally party with Epicureans because it's all about what's fun, what's the next adventure. But I think we have friends and we've seen relationships where either it's being too Stoic or too Epicurean, I think we all know it's not the answer. And I think the problem is kind of society thinks those are the only two possibilities. So I want to ask you the question right away. Which one are you? And this is the next point. Which one one really describes you the most? Either I deaden my emotions 
or I'm driven by emotions. Are you the person that deadens your emotions? You don't trust it. I'm just going to suppress it. That's of the enemy. I learned in Sunday school, I'm not, you know, if it's F-U-N, it must be S-I-N, right? So get away from me, deaden my emotions. Others of you, it's like, man, I'm, everything I do is based off emotion. So I asked my wife this week, because um, my theory was uh, your spouse is likely the other, you know, like, so if you're an emotional person, it's really natural for you to marry a non-emotional person and vice versa. And so I wanted to ask my wife, I said, like, okay, babe, uh, who am I? Who are you? I know, I know what I think you are, but, you know, I'm going to ask you. And so uh, she's like, well, it really depends. And I thought it was very profound. She says, if it's a negative emotion, you deaden it right away. If it's a positive emotion, you'll never stop talking about it, right? Like it determines everything. And what's funny is for my wife, she's kind of the opposite, but in a helpful way. So like if there is a positive emotion, she tends to deaden it to the extent of like, okay, we can't just trust every emotion. Just because this is happy, is this still holy? Like that's her. Like she's very much, we still need to be doing the right thing. Me, I'm like, let's just do the fun thing, okay? But for, um, for negative emotions, she kind of was like, hey, let's, let's, be, let's be driven by that in the sense of this is really pointing to something here that we need to work on. Me, I'm like, it's negative, let's not talk about it. She's like, no, 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 no. You and your family, you sweep things under the rug, but we'll, let's bring this out and let's work through this together. And I'm like, no, I just want to go home, right? You are home. I know, I just want to go to my parents. I don't know, I just want to get out of here, okay? And so this is actually the cause of a lot of relational disunity. And I actually think even just knowing that about yourself is a huge step forward in helping your marriage. So today, again, I want to say to those who deaden their emotions, I'm here to tell you, Emotions do matter. But to those who are driven by emotions, I'm here to tell you, they are a terrible master. And so we need to have a really balanced view of emotion. Our society can't seem to figure out what to do with emotions because if you actually really do a deep dive, some emotions are our masters and other emotions simply don't matter at all. For instance, boys are generally taught, I don't know because I don't have a boy. I got three girls though, so I'm about to really bring out, I don't have any wisdom because they're girls. I don't understand girls. Who understands girls? Nobody. But boys are generally taught, it's just so humbling. Like God gave me the, the creatures I know nothing about and I just still, I'm like, I thought I figured you out. Okay, now boys... You guys, us, men, okay, we're generally taught to deaden the emotion of fear and sadness. Don't be afraid you're a man. Don't cry, right? Don't, don't do that. You're a man. Okay, that's right. When I was a kid and I would get hurt on the trampoline, Jeremy would know this. He's my cousin. Where are you, Jeremy? Okay, I would get hurt. And then I was like, I'm a man though. So I would like cry for two minutes. And then I get up and be like, just kidding. You guys fell for it. Ha ha. When really I was crying, but I just acted like I was crying. Woof. But I really was. Anyways, it was fantastic. Um, it's, it, it worked. Okay. So if you deaden your emotion of fear, sad, don't, do not fear, do not be sad. But we're allowed to be driven by anger. God, good. Like when my dad, when I did football practice, just get ticked off. Just run through them. Not to them, run through them. I'm like, yeah. And then I, I would yawn before the game, and it was a thing. Okay, so boys, we're taught to deaden fear and sadness but be driven by anger. But the, ger- the girls, who are those? The girls are generally taught to do the exact opposite. Right? We're, they're taught deaden your emotion of anger. That is not, that's not a pleasing thing to do. Women don't get angry, which we all laugh, right? Okay, no, but... <laughs> But also for girls, they're allowed to be driven by fears and sadness. Sometimes to the, to the detriment, right? Where it's like, oh, no, but you just need to find a man. So don't, don't pursue that. Just you need to get your MRS degree, you know? And so 
Anybody? <laughs> Misses. Okay, so, like, you know, ah, it's okay. Oh, it's okay to be sad. You're just a girl. Just keep crying. That's my house. Just a lot of tears. Like, when they jump on the trampoline, everything today is about trampoline, apparently. But it's like, oh, good. They're having fun because I hear tears. You know, like, I hear crying. Like, that means they're interacting with each other. It's just constant. Yes, you can hear tears. Amen. Praise God. That's, that's the love I have as a father. I hear the tears. Okay. <laughs> But let's keep moving forward. I want us to look today. How, how do we deal with emotions? Some of us have been taught to deaden certain ones. Some of us are driven by them. And then when we have all that baggage, then we enter into a marriage relationship. And it makes everything that much worse. It makes everything that much more difficult. Let's, let's zero in on, on verse 33. It says, to sum up. So this is summarizing verse 22 through 32. To sum all of this up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself and the wife is to respect her husband. There's no landmines in here. The culture loves this verse. Aren't you excited to hear about it? Amen. Praise God. Oh, help me. Okay. So first, number one, we have to see how does the husband love his wife? I want us to look at how does that work with emotions. There are four loves in the Greek uh, that you have in the Bible. If you've read C.S. Lewis, he has this book called Four Loves. In fact, it was in the Super Bowl last week. It talked about agape, and I was like, yes. Greek nerd for life, and I was so excited. I don't even know what the commercial was about, but I heard agape, and I was like, that's right, I know what that means. Okay, but you have, here's the four different loves you have, and we want to make sure which one we know that Paul is talking about. Number one is storage. So that's kind of weird. Like, hey, babe, I storage you. Like, what? Okay, so what storage means is natural affection. It literally means, like, you're, you're in the family. So, like, um, you know, I love my sister. I kind of have to, right? You know, that, that kind of thing. No, I do love my sister. I'm talking about the other one. Don't worry, Shay. So, you know, like, <laughs> like I just love her because it's kind of just natural. You were just born into it. It's storage. Then you have philios, phila, which we know, Philadelphia. Delphos means brotherhood. Phila means love, but it's a friendship love. It's like my ride or die, you know what I'm saying? Like football team, we, I got your back, okay? That's, that's philia. And so that's actually not it. But then you have eros, which is what most men think of when they want to love their wife. It's this lustful intent. It can also be romantic. I believe it's included in marriage, praise God, but it's not the essential one that Paul's calling us to. What is he calling us to do? He's calling us to, number four, agape, unconditional love. It means to have God's love. So men, marriage is easy. Just love your wife like God loves you. You know, just real easy, pretty high standard for us. Okay, so how do, we, how do we do this? Dallas Willard, he has such a great line on what does agape love mean. I don't have it on your notes, but just listen. He says, we love something or someone when we promote its good for its own sake. Agape love promotes the good of someone else simply for its own sake. In other words, you can love somebody but still not wish them well unless you're a part of it. It, it means Agape love means it's sacrificial. You're willing to die, right? It means that it's selfless. It also means that you wish the person well, just overall flourishing. Even if that means you're not included in that flourishing, you just want that person to do really, really well. So it's really hard, though, men, for us to do that agape love when emotion is a part of that equation. It's really difficult to figure out, how do I love this person? Because everything kind of just seems so emotional. The thing about emotions, God gave us those emotions, but quickly emotion kind of turns into a whirlwind. And so a lot of the marriage advice that I've learned and I've read and I'm making sure I don't give at the workshop, it's great advice as long as emotions are in play. 
You know, it's really easy to love your wife if everyone's calm, but that's simply not the case. So how do you actually love when things are not calm? I think that's what we're called to do. St. Augustine, he has this quote about uh, mankind. He says, Man is a great depth, O Lord. The hairs of his head are easier by far to count than his feelings, the movements of his heart. It's easier to count the amount of hairs on your head than the amount of motions that you experience. And when you get married, you double that. So again, if emotions matter, but they're not our master, how are we as men supposed to love? Well, I think one way to look at this is um, when emotions are involved, if they become our master, we usually love in one of two ways. Number one is we fight. And number two is we flee, especially as men. I, 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 I told our team before, pray that this sermon's not sexist because I think there are gender things, but I could obviously just get in trouble saying something dumb. So pray for me. Pray for grace. And I'm so glad I'm the editor of these sermons. I did take out last week's mess up. Now, so fight or flee mentality. Okay. I really did. Go check it out. Fight or flee. So let me give you an example. Your wife experiences the emotion of sadness. What do you do when your wife is sad? I'll tell you what I do. I flee. Oh, or I make her flee. Go get a pedicure, right? I'll, I'll, I'll find the money. Just go, right? No, this is, again, I'm going to get in, in trouble. Now, sadness is actually a blessing because women can't overlook certain things. Men were like, everything's great. You know, like, I love my wife. And the wife's like, no, it's not. You know, like, you have no idea what's going on. Do you not remember what happened yesterday? Men are like, I don't know. <laughs> so the thing about emotions is it's your body. It's how you experience with your body. Uh, I read a, a book this week or, or a couple weeks ago, Why Emotions Matter by the Collins couple. And, and they actually said that your body or your emotions are like a second brain. And men don't listen to that brain either, okay? And so women are pretty connected to that brain, and they understand what's going on. Sadness points to something deeper. And so what agape love must do, we cannot flee the situation. We must endure the pain with them and figure out, why are you sad? What's crazy is often that sadness is cured just by you being with them. I hate it, but most of the time, they don't even want you to fix it. They just want you to sit with you, which makes no sense to me at all, right? That's what we're called to do. Maybe your wife, again, I was, this is the part I was scared about because um, we all experience these emotions. I'm just giving examples here. But let's say your wife is angry. How do you respond to your wife's anger? Some of us, we fight back. Oh, you're angry? I'm going to one-up you. I win this game. I'm going to be angry right back. Now, anger can be good. It can point to an injustice. It can point to an unmet expectation. So you have to work through some communication skills. Again, all this will be in the workshop. But essentially, do you fight her back? That is not agape love. But another thing I think a lot of us we fight is we fight everyone else. This one I need to be careful about, but I think it's really important. I've seen so many married couples, they don't fix each other. They just keep trying to change their surroundings and thinking that that will fix each other. People hop from church to church to church because finally that thing about them reveals itself and they just get mad that they don't accept them or whatever, right? What if you don't, you know, follow along with that rage and actually kind of, uh, like one example, uh, a book I read this week said that that, uh, emotion is a lot like quicksand. If your spouse jumps into the quicksand of anger, for example, we need to be wise and not jump into the quicksand with them. I'm trying to help you. We'll stop moving. And you just both collapse, right? And so what you're supposed to do is you're also not supposed to run away. That doesn't help them, right? But you are there for them, but you don't jump into the whirlwind with them. As men, we're supposed to help lovingly 
bring them out. See, emotions aren't the driver of our marriage, but they're certainly a very good dashboard. It's like a check engine sign. If emotions are going off, it's pointing to a deeper reality. And we have to ask, why are you sad? Why are you angry? Etc. I have to keep going. So that's it. The husband must love his wife. But now we see the wife must respect her husband. It says, uh, to sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself. And the wife is to respect her husband. This word respect here um, is to regard with feelings of reverence and honor. What I love about this is I love when my wife's emotional in the sense that it makes me feel respected. So like, in other words, if she just tells you, I respect you, but like does like an eye roll, I don't really feel respected, right? Like I honor you, I honor you, you know, that kind of thing. And so emotions are beautiful. So it's like, I, I love, like when she gives me the eyes, you know, it's like, she really does like me, you know, like that, that feels great. And, and so the emotions can be such a great thing to help solidify your marriage. But women... Pray for me. I'm trying to help you out here. But, um, but so, so if emotions matter, but they're not the master, how can a woman respect her husband? How is that possible? It's really easy to if emotions weren't a part of it. See, we, when we allow emotions to run and ruin our relationships, here's, here's another thing. Um, men and women tend to fight or flee. But another thing we tend to do is overfunction or underfunction. Overfunction or underfunction. For example, let's say your husband experiences the emotion of shame a lot. What does shame look like? Just lower his shoulders, doesn't speak up in certain contexts, right? Just kind of is ashamed of himself, doesn't like where he works, thinks he should be a better off place. Let me give you a secret, guys. Men are insecure. I don't know if you knew that. Shocker. We are very insecure. In fact, most of the men who really brag a lot, they are the most insecure out of all of us. We struggle with insecurity at our core. And so shame manifests itself in different ways. And what I've seen a lot is I have seen wives. They're amazing and they're trying to fix the situation, but they do it by over-functioning and treating their husband like they really are helpless. Don't worry, babe, I'll do it for you. That just spirals the relationship into something even worse. I see this often, right? They, men want to hear that you actually do believe in them. I told my wife last night, I was kind of running through this message because I was pretty nervous about it. And I told her, and I think she liked it, so I'm just going to say it. But, but I really do think as men, we thrive when we have a challenge and when we have a cheerleader. And women do great in supplying both. But sometimes, because you're incredible and you want your family to do well, you overfunction. you do things your husband's supposed to do, and that removes his challenge. But then when you remove the challenge, he kind of does less and less and less, and then you stop being his cheerleader because you don't have much to congratulate him for. Which, another side note, again, this is like a lot of landmines here, but please stop criticizing your husband in public. Don't shame him. It's funny, I know but it's not good for his soul, right? Amen, anybody? Now, if this person, if this husband is abusing you, let it, you need to do more than criticize him in public. We got to fix this. We can, like, there are things we want to step in place for you. We are not that church that says just deal with it. That is not it at all. We'll talk about that even more next week. So I want to make sure this is in the context of a healthy relationship, right? A non-abusive relationship. But please do not criticize your husband in public. He deals with shame enough, and we're called to, to respect and honor. See, I think in this sense, when, we over, when, when all of us, when, when 
when ladies overfunction, again, men can overfunction too, but in this case, when, when ladies overfunction, it's, it's showing you that you don't honor your husband's abilities. You don't think he has the skill sets to do what he is called to do. And that only makes things worse. Now, I think men should step up. Even if you don't have a cheerleader, you still need to be a man. So don't be like, it's your fault. That's the whole, not, not the whole point of this sermon, right? It's all about how can you serve your, your spouse. But some of us underfunction. Ladies tend to underfunction, especially like when your man gets jealous. Jealousy is a real emotion that God has wired us to experience. Sometimes it really helps. Uh, jealousy is what protects my wife from people, right? Like, you better keep that wedding ring on. You know what I'm saying? Like my kids, like, yeah, like you better watch out. Like I'm a, like God says he's a jealous God. There's a way to do that the right way. But I think um, just even this week, we had an opportunity for us to experience this. I told my wife, um, she was reading a book by Jenny Allen. She's like, man, it's all talking about like, like what you think does more than you think. I said, I wonder where you heard that before, darling. You had to learn that from a book. I preached that a couple weeks ago, right? She went, no, it's great. You know, like your mind is some, I know, I taught it already. You know, so I started getting jealous. I was like, so she teaches you that, huh? I'm just, uh, whatever. But I was so grateful because she could have totally underfunctioned and just shut down and said, just forget it. You don't understand it. But she was so nice to me. I'm like, you know, I'm preaching on marriage this week, huh? Like, you're just looking good right now. She goes, no, babe, like, I totally get it. I'm just, from a woman's perspective, like, you did a great job. I'm like, thanks, honey. You know, all this stuff is fantastic. She really shined this week. But but when you shut down, when you underfunction and just say, and we say, oh, the men just take care of everything. That's actually not what we're called to do either. See, ladies, honoring your husband, you need to not just honor his abilities, but also honor his vision and believe we're in this thing together. I believe in your vision. I know what we're doing with our family. Let's do this thing together. Here's why I think a lot of marriages don't do well in this, because we have forgotten that peace is often not peaceful. Amen? Peace is often not peaceful. You gotta fight to get peace. You gotta work through these things. You gotta untangle those emotions. You gotta fight for it. But it's worth the fight. And emotions are a beautiful way to remind us that it's worth the fight. So I need to end. What is the solution for us in our marriage? What are we called to do? Well, I think one thing is for us to have a deeper dive on what emotions are pointing to. I do want to say that each emotion is pointing to a different problem. So some, um, one man is experiencing shame maybe because of uh, fatherhood issues, but others are experiencing shame because of their own sin that they've committed in their own life. So it's not just some blanket statement. But it is helpful to know that shame usually signals that you're having your identity threatened. Um, fear signals that you might be in danger. Anger signals that your expectations have not been met. Sadness signals that something needs to be healed. Jealousy signals uh, unfulfilled desire, right? There's all sorts of things that these point to, and it's complicated, and I believe it's unique for every single person. But I want us to end with some application we'd actually walk away with. So I think we have to look at it this way. This is my last point. Do you see this as a problem to solve or as a person to serve? And all this emotional chaos and all the things that you know your marriage is dealing with, your relationships in general, do you see this as a problem to be solved or a person to be served? Every time when I talk to somebody and they just think it's a problem to be solved, that problem only gets worse. Like your wife loves the kids more than you do. Or maybe your husband watches football more than he watches the kids. 
which you won't have to deal with that for a couple months. Amen, right? Actually, XFL came out and everybody's loving it. So anyways, yeah, there goes that. But what if it's actually pointing to something deeper? What if they aren't watching the kids because they don't feel loved by you? What if they love the kids more than you because you don't love and serve them? We have to recognize it's actually more about serving the other person. What if your wife makes fun of you in front of your friends or your husband ignores you in front of your friends? More than this, a problem needing to be solved. It actually, the problem is solved when we realize more than that, it is a person to be served. I can go on and on and on. There's so many relational issues. Your wife's too afraid to pursue her dreams. Your husband's too lazy to get the house in order. And if we just try to quickly solve the problem, it only makes the problems worse and they manifest themselves in different areas. So we have to realize this is the essence of the gospel and knowing that more than this being a problem to solve, this is actually a person to serve. Let me remind you that emotions matter, but they're a terrible master. But Jesus is our master, amen? Emotions are not our master, but Jesus is. And what I love about the gospel Jesus did not come simply to solve a problem. Jesus came to serve a people. That's what I love about Paul here. He's referencing it. He's saying, this is verse 32. This mystery is profound, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. He's going back and forth between Christ and the church and husband and wife. There is a beautiful imagery here. And the point here, I believe he's really trying to hit home, is that we serve a God who's not just here to solve problems. He is here to serve a people. When I think of Jesus, he was on his way to solve one of the biggest problems. You had Lazarus who was dying. In fact, we believe at this point already he was dead. But what did Jesus do? He is walking to go solve this problem. And then a lady who has been bleeding for 12 years does what? Touches his rope. Now, actually, Jesus probably should have just kept walking. Why? Because the problem was solved. Just by her touching the robe, she was healed. But what does he say? Whoa, everybody stop. Somebody touched me. The disciples say, are you crazy? Everybody's touching you. What do you mean? You've been touched this whole time. He said, no, no, no. I felt power come out. What are you talking about? Looks around and sees this lady and she says, sorry, I just wanted to touch your robe because I've been, I've been hurting. I've been bleeding. And he says, go on, Right? You are healed. Your faith has made you well. What did Jesus do? He knew more important than the problem to be solved. He wanted to look at the person and say, I am here to serve. This is the Jesus that we follow. I think of Jesus when the scribes and Pharisees were gathering around about to stone the adulterous women. What does Jesus do? He steps in. Now we look at it, this adulterous woman, this is a problem to society. Here we are to solve it. Let's kill her and then our society will be better. Jesus begins to write on the ground. Many believe he was writing out the sins of those who are about to throw the stone. Jesus proves to us he came not to simply solve a problem, but he came to serve a people. He served her that day. I could go on and on and on. One thing that really encourages me is the story of the prodigal son. See, when we look at it, we think the prodigal son is the problem. When Jesus looks at the prodigal, when the father looks at the prodigal, he looks at the prodigal as a person. What I love about the prodigal son, he's like, I am a problem and I know how to solve it. I'm going to go back home. What I'm going to do? I'm going to be a slave. I'm not going to be a son. I'm going to serve him all my life. 
I'm not going to be your son. I'm going to be treated like the slaves, but at least I can be in your house. And the father didn't even let him finish his pitch and said, no, 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 no. This is not a problem to be solved. Son, right now you are a person to be served and we are throwing you the biggest party. Our God did not just come to just solve a problem. He came to serve a people. In fact, if Jesus came only to solve a problem, there had been a much easier way to do it. I think, number one, Jesus could have removed our emotions, removed our ability to choose. Because when we have affections, you and I know, in our sin, we... What's that hymn? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Right? We're prone to wander. But no, no, that's not, that's not how we're solving the problem because Jesus is a loving God and He wants you to experience the emotions of love. I think another good solution God could have done is just wipe us all out. Adam and Eve don't mess it up. All right, that's fine. We'll just hang out with emus the rest of eternity, right? I don't know. Let's get rid of humanity. But God is a loving God who knows that humanity is not just a problem to solve. It is a people to serve. And you and I, our opportunity in marriage is to show the world, this world who just keeps coming up with more and more problems and we're trying to vote for the person that has the most solutions, we're here to say, no, 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 no. These are all people made in the image of God and we're here to serve them. And I'm going to show that in my life in society, but also in my marriage. This is a person that God created, that God loved, that has passion, that has reason to live, that has emotions that are pointing to a deeper reality. And it's my decision, not just to solve it, because if I was just to solve my marriage issues, I wouldn't be married. Amen? But to fix it, you serve it. And I love that that's the essence of our gospel. We are here to love and to serve and to sacrifice and be helpless. And I believe that's only possible Because Jesus did that on the cross for us. Jesus should have destroyed us because of our sin. But instead, he served us by being destroyed for our sin. Jesus should have deadened our ability to choose and simply command our obedience. But instead, Jesus died so that we could choose and be invited into abundance.